0: From 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And then the next reading is from John 17, verses 14 through 18. And it reads, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Good morning to y'all. Uh, good to see everybody here, such as it is. Um, appreciate the songs and the Lord's Supper message from Paul and uh, Daniel um, doing our family Bible education. Just see, good to see all y'all's faces today. Our new theme for 2020, as you know, is um, sent. S-E-N-T, sent loving the world like God loved us, uh, which takes its inspiration and its marching orders from these two texts that are on our screen now that Greg just read, 1 John 4, 19, and John 17, particularly verse 18. If you remember earlier this month, we began looking at the implications of John 17, verse 18, um, which is... uh, highlighted now on the screen. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so we've been calling this little mini-series, Sent Like Jesus. Last week, we did an interactive kind of Zoom session, and in that, I think it became clear that uh, we, we all began to see how we aren't really honoring God's sending us into the world if we aren't actually in the world. So we talked about What it means to be in the world in concrete terms, in practical everyday terms. If we remain aloof and remote and uninvolved and disconnected from our neighbors, we're not really in the world, though geographically we're on the same planet. That's not what the term means. It's a very important preposition to go into the world and to actually be in the world. And we plan to talk more in future studies about how we can better connect um, with people in the world, with our neighbors. But in today's sermon, Um, which I'm considering kind of the second uh, lesson in the series, last week kind of an interlude. Um, What we want to do today's lesson is talk about uh, the mental attitude with which we should approach the world, kind of the psychological frame of mind that should shape the way that we relate to the world. And I want to begin by merely making a, a fairly obvious observation maybe you've felt before, and that is that this world isn't necessarily a place that is cordial to Christian values. Um, it's not necessarily um, its default mode to be, you know, kind and open to the Christian lifestyle. So, going into the world can be a daunting thing. It can be intimidating. Um, so, what is the mental disposition that would be necessary for us to have if we're truly going to go into the world. That's what we want to look at for a few minutes this morning. And I want to suggest that first of all, we've got to love the world. We have to love the world. I don't know if you think about this very often, but I don't know. Would you think that a a Christian's general outlook toward the world should be one of love, especially when we consider what is said in first John two, just a couple chapters earlier, verse 15. We're actually commanded, do not love the world or the things in the world. <clears throat> if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, we've got to first of all kind of caveat this, that we're not to love the world in the sense that 1 John 2.15 is forbidding. James uh, chapter 4 says that friendship with this sinful world is actually enmity with God. <clears throat> so, if we're best friends with the world, we're probably not best friends with God. We may be something closer to enemies, James 4 would tell us. That's the disclaimer, and and, and I have to characterize it that way because on the other hand, and the other hand is a very very large hand, um, biblically speaking, in terms of emphasis and weight. On the other hand, that is, Jesus came to make friends with people in the world. Same Bible that says we're not to love the world or to have friendship with the world, says that Jesus came to do precisely those very things. Um, remember when he was accused by the Pharisees and law experts in Luke 7 of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a friend of the world. He's a friend of the worldly people. And this is honestly, even though this is a criticism coming at Jesus from people who opposed him, this is one thing that his critics actually got spot on, because in John fifteen fifteen, Jesus himself says no longer to the disciples, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus didn't brook any quarter with sin. He calls sin, sin. Uh, He hated sin. But here's the point. Jesus did not confuse sin with the sinner. He didn't confuse sin with the sinner. The former he hated, the latter he loved and loved deeply. Indeed, it was God's love for this fallen world that spawned the gospel plan in the first place which essentially proposed to turn God's enemies into friends. Who can forget John 3.16 that tells us it was because God, quote, so loved the world that he acted to keep the world from perishing. And it was perishing because of its own mistakes. It's very unlovable sinfulness, and God loved it anyway. And you know to love something that isn't loving you back can be really difficult for sure. It was certainly costly for God. He so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world John 3:16 says that he gave. And not only to give in general, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. <clears throat> The world, think about this, God so loved the world. What's the world? Well, the world, in Jesus' age, in our own age, and in every age in between, is a world twisted by sin, blackened by sin. There was no golden age. I think a lot of folks like to think that, well, the golden age was the 1950s, or you know the 1880s or uh, the 1770s with America's founding, or it was um, the first century. You read through the New Testament, read First Corinthians. Doesn't really sound like a golden age. Uh, they're they're dividing and in strife with each other almost from day one. Um, there wasn't a golden age, and there were no good old days really. It is true that when Jesus entered the world, he entered it at the time he did on purpose. It was as Paul put it when the fullness of times had come, but think about that world. This was not a world predisposed to put Jesus on a pedestal. It was a world that would put him on a cross, and still he went. He was sent, and he went into the world, into that world. That was hard. And we have to remind ourselves that biblical love always involves sacrifice. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this. The son of man came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And we are called to nothing less. To follow Jesus into this world means being prepared to sacrifice for the world that he loves so much and that we should love as well. Now, a closely related character trait of those who would willingly follow Jesus into this world is the trait of compassion. With what mental attitude or from what psychological disposition should we approach the world and see our relationship, you know, conceptualize our relationship with the sinful world? With love, but also with compassion. Compassion is a word we've talked about numerous times here. The basic meaning is to suffer with someone else's sufferings. You relate to, you take them upon yourselves, you feel them, you suffer with them. That's the the meaning, the derivation, the etymology of the word compassion, and it is a fundamental character character, tra, character trait of God. There are any number of passages that teach us this, especially in the Old Testament. One of which would be Psalm one forty five. Which says simply in verse eight, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in mercy. He doesn't treat mercy and compassion as kind of a footnote on the character of God, which is otherwise so just orient, justice oriented that he's angry all the time, just waiting, you know, finger on the trigger, ready to blow you away. No, that's the opposite point being made here. He's actually gracious and compassionate, and he's great in mercy. It's overflowing. He's good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. I mean, this is kind of superlative language to describe the compassion of God. It was one of his basic character traits. And as Jesus was the Son of God, being himself divine, he has the same trait. We're told this in the Gospels. On one occasion in Mark 6, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them. He's suffering along with them because, not because they're good people, but because they're sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach many of them. And this compulsion to share in the sufferings, to participate in the hardship of others, even hardship they brought upon themselves as sinners, that is precisely what led Jesus into the world to take the very form of those vulnerable human beings that he loved and needed him so much. But compassion is not, it may be characteristic of God, it may be characteristic of the Son of God, but compassion is not necessarily characteristic of the world. I want to read with you a short paragraph here from Matthew 20, verses 30 through 34, and I want you to notice the contrast between the crowds on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand uh, in the way that they respond to the request of these blind men. This is Matthew 20, beginning in verse 30. It says, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They're wanting compassion. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed them. So notice that the crowds, we're told in verse 31, rebuked these people in need of mercy, whereas Jesus, in pity, touched them. A a sad fact that we have to own up to and admit is that religious folks are often more like the crowds in this paragraph than they are like Jesus. I mean, in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, you've got this guy beat up on the side of the road. The command to love your neighbor as yourself being the great command of the Torah of the Jewish people. It is a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite, ostensibly pious people these are the righteous ones on paper they don't have time for him or something's going on they pass by on the other side whereas we read that the samaritan as he journeyed luke 10 came to where this man was and when he saw him he had compassion and he went to him so our going to people he went to him he was sent he felt sent by this compassion it will never be sent people unless we have compassion for those to whom we are being sent. So who knows why these religious people were more like the crowds without compassion, stingy with their, their um, empathy. Uh, maybe it's from uh, when we're like that, maybe it's because we're so unswervingly loyal to our, you know, our agendas, my, my schedule for the day is just an almighty God that must be bowed to. It cannot be tweaked. It cannot be changed. It's like the law of the Medes and Persians. Maybe it's because we have some kind of self-righteous sense of propriety. You blind people should be quiet. The son of David's walking through. It's a kind of sanctimonious sense of propriety that's actually out of whack when it comes to the standard of the Bible. Or maybe it's just plain callousness, whatever it is. People of faith, if we're honest, You know what we can often do? We often open our hands wide to receive God's compassion. And then we turn right around to the hurting world at our doorstep with closed fists. Why are we like that? This certainly isn't coming from a heart like the heart of Jesus, who went into the world to mix with people beset by sin. Is that too strong a verb? No, no. He sat down and ate with them. He mixed with people blinded by the world's confusion. Why is it that Jesus so often blasts the religious leaders while attending gently to the despised, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the lepers? I think the answer is because compassion means learning to look behind and beyond people's failures, to feel and appreciate their burdens, their struggles and their suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do, and more in the light of what they suffer. Now, when you boil it down, both compassion and love are acts of empathy, I think, not in the narrow sense of the term, but in the sense that we get in the shoes of another person and we see their needs and their struggles and their suffering. We learn to see and feel from the perspective of someone outside ourselves. And to do so is not to endorse their mistakes or to leave them in their suffering. Rather, it is to better know them so that we may better help them. And that brings up our third point about how we should approach the world in terms of our psychological, uh, mental framework. We've got to love the world. We've got to go into the world with compassion, and we've got to be people who try to understand the world. And what I'm talking about here is, is relating to it, getting to know it, truly listening to it. And I think a lot of times the people of faith have often been very ill-disposed to listen to the world. They I don't know Satan puts in our, our minds, this idea that might be compromised. Well, it wasn't in Jesus's case, but somehow in ours, it's going to be. And so we have a very unnuanced view of the world. It's, it's all, it's just horrible. It's bad. It's to be kept at bay. When really, yes, it's horrible and bad, but we're to go into it. We're to go into it. Um, just as the father sent me into the world. So I am sending them into that world. Well, what does understanding that world or having knowledge of that world have to do with this? I think this is why we see Jesus mixing with the world so much. And if you're a little bit uh, taken aback by my choice of the verb mixing, I want to remind us all that Jesus literally became part of the world that he created. All right? So he creates it, John 114 or John 1 says, and then he is, you know, ab- above and beyond it. But Philippians 2 says that he did not count that divine, all those divine privileges apart and above the world to be something to, to, held on, to be held on to, to be clung to, but emptied himself of all that and became a human being and entered the world. Why? In part because he, he wanted to understand and feel what we feel. I mean, this is really the point Hebrews 2 is making. When, when speaking of Jesus in Hebrews 2, verse 14, the writer says, since therefore the children, that is us, human beings, share in flesh and blood, right? That's what we are. He himself, Christ himself, partook of the same things. Why? To relate to us. To, if you're going to be a high priest, you have to sort of be able to speak the language of both heaven and earth, the divine and the human, God and man. And so it says in verse 17, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of people. Jesus mixed with the world, literally becoming part of it. And I want to also uh, to exemplify this point uh, or or this, the importance of understanding the world and uh, coming to it in its language, in its terms. I want to note with you how the apostle Paul shared the gospel when he came to Athens. In Acts 17, you remember that famous speech where he's at the Areopagus, which is sort of a Athenian, it was a location, but it was also an institution where uh, philosophers and sages and wise men in the kind of Greco-Roman tradition would meet to discuss theology and religion and the gods and humans and how they related, but also make decisions on whether certain religions were... um, uh, not acceptable um, from the Roman Empire's perspective. They, they made decisions there too. And so I don't know whether they're just having a conversation in Acts 17, kind of, you know, chewing the fat about theology, or if Paul is sort of in a, a de facto under trial, it's hard to tell. Um, but at any rate, you get the apostle Paul speaking, and that's what this excerpt from uh, comes from. In Acts 17, his speech um, at the, the seat of, of human wisdom in many ways. And he says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for he quotes here in him, we live and move and have our being. And then a second quote, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now these two quotes are actually things that Paul did not make up. He's quoting somebody that they would have known well, and he knew they knew these people well. The first quote comes from an individual named Epimenides, who wrote a work called Cretica. It's straight from it, and it was well known in uh, Hellenistic circles. The second comes from the writings of Eratus, something called Phenomena, for we are indeed his offspring, which was probably a riff on this hymn to Zeus, by an individual named Cleanthus. So, Paul, I want you to get your mind around this. Here is a rabbinically trained Pharisee, you know, who's trained in Jerusalem, citing pagan writers as if he were a Greek sage. That's interesting. Why is Paul doing that? I've actually had older preachers on occasion tell me we shouldn't quote people in in our sermons, not even Christian people, Um, if they're not in our faith circles. Well, Paul's quoting pagans, Um, so I think he's beyond that. He's quoting things they said that were true, to be sure, but why is Paul doing this? I think the answer is that he's trying to relate the gospel to the world that he is actually in. This is a different approach than he's going to use in certain Jewish circles or in certain synagogues. You know, he never quotes a single scripture to the Athenians, they don't believe the scriptures. It's going to be a circular argument to them. You're quoting something that you believe to get me to believe something you believe, but we don't believe that. Instead, he comes at it from where they are. He gets to the same point. Um, you know, a lot of scholars think the whole Athenian sermon is a subversion or a parody of something called the hymn to Zeus. It was a stoic hymn that was very popular in Athens and in Greek culture, and most of the elements in his Acts 17 sermon are, are, are right along the lines with Stoicism. Remember, the Stoics and the Epicureans are in the audience. Stoicism was a lot closer to a biblical worldview than Epicureanism. And the, and so Paul's going along and they're probably nodding. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. Good point. Good point. Good point. Until he gets to two things that they manifestly did not believe in. But by then, he maybe has them hooked, possibly. Or at least he, he's, he's done a switcheroo on them subverted their view and here, sort of gone into their story but then subverted it instead of just saying at the outset everything you think is false because you're not christians and that's my point here he's understanding where they're coming from it's much more subtle than a culture war view of mission Um, because at the end he's going to say we're going to all be judged by a resurrected human being god man named Jesus. And those are two ideas the Stoics would not have accepted, but by then he's already bought their credibility with about 10 or 12 parallels with um, the hymn to Zeus. Why had Paul learned all of this? You don't just say this off the cuff. Why had he spent precious time reading worldly literature? You ever thought about that? And I think we need to recognize the fact that sometimes we can conflate consecration, holiness, with being contrarians. We, we assume that if I'm, if I'm contrarian enough over against the general culture and society, then I must be consecrated. Because the goal is to be different. There's a lot of ways to be different that are also wrong. And I don't think the goal has ever been just be different. It's to be different where the scriptures call us to be different. Sometimes cultures get things right. All cultures are human constructs, and they get some things right and some things wrong. There's pluses and minuses about American culture. There were pluses and minuses about the Roman Empire. The point is, contrarianism doesn't equal consecration. And some of us have a kind of compulsive attitude to just go against anything that gets a lot of airplay. Well, that may be a way to be off-putting, and maybe there's some truth there. Or we could give it a Christian angle that, like, I get get why you're concerned about that, but let me show you about this. So Paul's trying to build some bridges here. And let me suggest to you that everything about the gospel is basically God trying to put his word, his truth, his love into our terms. He's trying to speak our language, if you will. Otherwise, we're not going to understand him. Did you know that at one point in history, or at least for, for centuries in history, Koine Greek, the, the version of Greek that the New Testament is written in, that God in his province, uh, providence chose to use for all time to be the original language of the New Testament, that for years and years and years, Many people thought that Koine Greek, because they knew it wasn't classical Greek. You could go read Homer or somebody like that, the Iliad, the Odyssey, or whatever, and it didn't look like the same language. It had evolved. It's like reading Beowulf versus modern English or something. Um, I don't know if the difference is that great or not, but it's it's a different. You know, it's it's evolved enough to not be uh, completely coherent um, from the standpoint of other historical versions of Greek. And so, what do we? What is this Koine Greek? What is it? What wasn't called Koine then, then? It was just called Biblical Greek. Some folks thought it was a a special Holy Ghost language that had been coined by God, created by God just for the Bible. Because after all, the Bible is holy, so the language must be special. So it was this heavenly, angelic, Holy Ghost language. And and that view was one of the main views until around 1900, when scholars discovered, through some papyri in Egypt mainly, that, that this Greek wasn't anything of the kind. It was actually just the the common language of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. It was the language used, uh, you know, by, by farmers and by people loading ships at the dock and whatever. God's love led him to speak the truths of heaven in the world's language so that the most common shepherd in a field could understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. What does this say about us as we think about our relationship with the world? Well, we need, if we're sent like Jesus, we need to speak the world's language. We need to relate the gospel to the questions and problems and patterns of thought and the culture of the people we're trying to help. We need to be light on our feet. Going into the world isn't just about being in physical proximity. You know, I live in the same subdivision you do. I'm in the world. That's not what it means. It's about connecting with the world. And there's no connecting without doing this kind of listening to it, learning it, understanding it enough to communicate the gospel to it. Think about teachers, good teachers. One of the main things they do is try to connect with their students and build rapport and know where their students are coming from. What's his home life like? What what struggles does she have? And if you begin to connect on that level, you you get better at getting across the math or the science or the literature or whatever it is. Jesus was called Emmanuel. 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 One of the names of one of my grandsons. What a wonderful name. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. What an awesome idea. In Christ, God came to be with us, with the world, to experience our plight, to serve our needs, to save us from our particular sins. And it was all called good news, gospel. And Jesus related this news to the world, this broken, dark, sinful world, across kitchen tables and around community wells and walking up and down the byways of the country. And he bothered, he deigned, he condescended to put it in terms that we could understand. He spoke our language, if you will. And the question we must pose to ourselves, if we're, going to, if we're going to be sent into this world like Jesus was, is are we doing the same in our world? All right, for next week, somebody may be thinking, all right, well, that, that sounds good, but isn't there more to this question of going into the world? Aren't there risks involved with trying to relate to the world like this? And how might being in the world like Jesus jeopardize the actual truth of the gospel? Stay tuned. Come back next week and we'll talk about that. Thanks a lot, y'all.